You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the day. Uh, we want to thank you for Jesus. Uh, and we want to thank you uh, for this thing called the church and uh, kind of a beautiful, messy, incredible thing that you've given us. And we thank you for uh, every bit of it. it. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, last uh, Sunday, we were right at the tail end of a trip uh, to see my sister uh, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And uh, if you've never been up there, it is like otherworldly beautiful. Uh, and, you know, we saw, we saw some beautiful water on Lake Superior uh, and did some hiking and saw a waterfall and all of these beautiful things. But all the beautiful things that we saw uh, isn't anywhere close to the, to the most beautiful thing that we saw. Um, I, I want to tell you this morning about the most beautiful thing I saw while I was up there. Uh, my sister is uh, right now raising six children. Um, she's got uh, two biolog biological children. Uh, one of those is a, a special needs little boy, Adam. Uh, they're both awesome kids. Adam's, you know, a really sweethearted kid, but he has some special needs. They have an adoptive daughter, and then they're currently fostering uh, three other children. Uh, that we're in a, a really, really tough situation. This is not what this sermon is about, but I just want to kind of get this out there. Um, don't, please do not believe the lie that Christianity only cares about births, that they don't really care about life. As our, as our nation's having this kind of conversation about life and pro-life, pro-choice and all that stuff, don't believe the lie that Christians don't believe about this issue. Uh, because my sister and her husband were sitting in church and they were convicted that they should step into this arena, and they've adopted, and they've, they've fostered. And you may not know this, but uh, if you're uh, in the adoptive kind of uh, fostering world, Christians are four times more likely to adopt or foster than any other subgroup in the United States. And so I don't know why, this is just me ranting, this is not what the sermon is about, but I'm not sure why we're taking the brunt of the criticism here. Right? Um, we're, we're four times more likely to engage in this issue. And so my sister and her husband are doing that. My nephew, Adam, the, their special needs little boy, he had just kind of graduated out of their kid zone uh, and was welcomed into adult church like a lot of you uh, are, are welcomed into adult church. And he was struggling. All right? Ants in his pants, didn't want to sit, getting up, kind of leaving. My sister was following him out. Roy, uh, her husband, was following him out. And it just wasn't going, like, super, super well. And three retired guys in the church were kind of observing this. And they came up to my sister and her husband, Roy, and said, let us sit with Adam. We'll take turns. Let us sit with him. One of us will sit with him every Sunday. And then you and your husband uh, can enjoy church. And so we went to church with them this last Sunday, and we're worshiping God. And out of the corner of my eye, right in their front row, is this probably 70-year-old guy and Adam, 14-year-old Adam, sitting in the front row. Adam has his headphones on because he has some sensory issues. And it was the most beautiful thing that I saw on that vacation. Because there's this caricature in our culture about the Christian that is judgmental, angry, unkind, disengaged. And I just have to tell that just has not been my experience with the church. Right now, is there some judgmental people sometimes in churches? Of course there are. Right? Are there unkind? Of course there's some of that. But by and large, what I have experienced in, in the church of Jesus Christ has been kindness 
and compassion and people leaning into issues. You know, it was when Cheryl and I were going kind of through some of our infertility struggles that people were praying for us and helping us and encouraging us. It's when we lost our parents that people brought meals and supported us and were kind to us. It's when we've been through some of the deepest sorrows and some of the biggest challenges that it is the church of Jesus that leaned into us and helped us, and served us, and were kind to us. And so I just want to challenge, as we're we're talking about church as family today, I just want to challenge a couple of these notions that, like, who are these people that don't care, right? Most Christians I know are leaning into serving, and loving, and helping, and it is a beautiful and incredible thing. And, And I think we need to start with the idea, and you all probably already know this, but When you talk about church as family, we already know that not all family has to be biological family, right? You can have people that are not biologically related to you that you consider to be family, right? If you're married, you understand this because at some point you met a person, you fell in love, you proposed, and you set a date, and you walked through a ceremony and a reception, and you got a bunch of toasters, And unless you live in Kentucky, there's no biological relationship, right? (laughs) I shouldn't have made that joke. I I regret that joke, but just go with it, all right? Right? There's no biological relationship there, but you form a family and you love one another. Uh, If you've ever adopted or walked with someone through adoption or fostered or walked with someone through fostering, you know how quickly people become family that are not necessarily biologically related to one another. If you're in a blended family, a second marriage, whatever, you really understand this because you may have married someone that had kids and very quickly it's like, man, they became your family. Uh, Not all family is biological family. And so we understand this in the church. That that, uh, when when we were kind of setting our vision quite a while ago, we were trying to figure out what is the image that we want to be known as. And we, you, it's written all over our building, it's written on all of our literature, that we are a growing family. We're a growing family, journeying together to be more like Jesus. We want to be this church that desperately looks like and feels like family. And every church picks an image of some kind. Every single church does. For some people, it's like the image of a hospital that we are a hospital for hurting people. Some people like pick the image of an army, that like we're on a crusade, we're going after justice, we're, we're, we're doing that. Some people pick Paul's metaphor in the book of 1 Corinthians, that we are a body functioning together. And, and those are all good and they're biblical. There's nothing wrong with any of those. But when it kind of boiled down to what do we want to look like, what do we want to be, we chose family. And the reason we chose that is as we studied the early church, we, we very quickly came to the conclusion as we studied the early church, this just looks like a spiritual family. All right, here's Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And we just got back uh, from our vacation of family. We saw Upper Peninsula family and Lower Peninsula family. And we did a lot of really fun things. But I'll tell you, after the last couple years, the dominant thing that we felt on that, this particular vacation as we were spending time with both sides of our family is the dominant feeling was this. It is nice to be together. It's nice to be together. The, the activities are fun. The views are beautiful. It's fun to watch my kids uh, swim in, in Lake Michigan. 
Uh, That's all great. But the dominant feeling was, man, it's great to be together. And I suspect if you come out tonight, I suspect we're going to feel that way tonight uh, at the pool party, that there's going to be a lot of fun, kids going down slides, splashing each other, having a good time. But I bet one of the dominant feelings will be, it is nice to be together. The early church was together. This was the consistent description of them as a church. Now, all that being said, we don't want to overly romanticize the early church either, right? We want to be careful about that. They had issues. Uh, they, they had big issues. The Apostle Paul and Peter uh, one time got into a real, uh, a, a real conflict when, when you read the Bible, a real conflict over a couple of different issues. Uh, there was a, a, a big issue over uh, the Jewish Christians that had come into faith first and then the Gentile Christians who were kind of invited in a little bit later. The Jewish Christians were saying, man, you need to become Jewish before you can become Christian, uh, which meant a surgery called circumcision. Ask your parents about it on the way home. They'll love me. All right, so... Uh, <laughs> Right? And, and so that discussion was kind of unfolding about what do you really need to do to become a Christian. And it became such a serious issue that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles were like, hey, we need to have a family meeting. We need to have a family meeting about this. And they did. They had a family meeting. And at the end, end of the family meeting, they said, listen, here's our conclusion. We shouldn't make it hard for people that want to come to faith in Jesus. And requiring surgery of them certainly is a criteria for making it hard to do that. And so they said, we, we, we want people to come into the family by and through grace, right? And so we don't want to overly romanticize the early church. They had conflict. They had difficulties. They had disagreement. And, and your family's the same way. Some of you, you might have a summer gathering of some kind over the course of, of this summer yet. And as you're preparing, you may say, hey, listen, I... When so-and-so gets here, whoever it is, when so-and-so gets here, we're done talking politics. I don't want to hear about President Trump. I don't want to hear about President Biden. I I don't want, for the love of all, do not bring up Hillary Clinton, right? Politics is off limits when so-and-so gets here. Or you might say, man, when so-and-so gets here, we're done talking sports, right? No, who's the greatest of all time? No more bulls, no more Illini. We're done talking sports. It just goes south. We're not talking about money. When so-and-so gets here, we're done talking about money. And the truth is family isn't always easy and it's not always perfect. We have disagreement. We see things a different way, but family is a place where those obstacles and perspectives and disagreements are overcome for the good of the family. And the, church, the early church understood this as well. In the midst of their conflict and difficulty, they were still described as having been all together. Like, we're not going to let these obstacles stop us. And you see this imagery throughout the New Testament. Paul especially loves it. Uh, in Ephesians 2.18, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. In Galatians, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. And lastly, in 1 Timothy, he writes, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all, in all purity. And I think Paul was really drawn to this imagery of family. Like, I wonder why. And and the more I thought about it, it was like, Paul, before he became a Christian, Paul persecuted the early church. He was imprisoning, killing, uh, really hurt a lot of people. And and that was kind of his job. It was his role in Judaism to do that. So he was persecuting the early church. And at one point on the road to Damascus, Jesus, like, shone a bright light in his face, blinded him, and said, we're going to have a talk. All right? 
Why are you persecuting me? And they had a conversation about that, and he ended up becoming a Christian. And I think what we forget about Paul sometimes is think about everything Paul lost when he gave his life to Christ. The career, over. All right, career's over. All right, some of the family relationships he had, over. A lot of the friendships that he had, over. Paul lost a lot, but he said what he gained was Christ. And what he gained was a church family. And so I think this imagery of family was really, really important to him. And I think that he really received this. As, as he studied Jesus' life, I think he saw this in Jesus. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to John 17. That's where we'll be uh, the rest of the time. That they, they got this family imagery, first of all, from Jesus' example, that when Jesus uh, began his earthly ministry, it would last about three years, he did something really interesting. He invited these 12 guys to follow him and be with him over the course of those three years. And as you study those three years, Jesus and his disciples ended up loving each other, kind of like family. As a matter of fact, at one point in his ministry, Jesus prays for those, these 12 apostles, and here's what he says. He says, when I was with them, talking about the apostles, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. Sounds like a family, doesn't it? And as you read the story of Jesus, you see him correcting these disciples. You see him joking with them. You see him spending time with them. And as you read it, it's like, man, Jesus really viewed these guys as his family. And there's two scenes in particular that I think really, really would, would kind of point to this. One is when Jesus says, um, they're uh, at the Last Supper, and Jesus says, man, all of you are, are going to fall away on account of me. And Peter gets very belligerent and says, if everybody at this table falls away, I'll never fall away. Peter was the one, by the way, that everyone was like, hey, when Peter arrives, we're done with sports. All right? When, when, yeah, yeah, he was that guy. He's like, when Peter gets here, no more politics. All right? Uh, that Peter was that guy who said, hey, if all these knuckleheads fall away, I'll never fall away. And it's this kind of tender scene where he's like, I would never betray my family, Jesus. Peter feels that way. And then you have this very, very tender scene as well of from the cross, Jesus turns to what we now know is kind of his best friend, John, amongst the disciples. He and John were the closest, and he essentially asked John to take care of his mother after he dies. Uh, and and these, these were his family. And I think that after the resurrection and after Jesus ascended, as these guys were establishing the early church by the power of the Holy Spirit, I think they just naturally set up things the way that had been an example to them. They set up the church like family. And church is supposed to be a really good family. And listen, I know this imagery doesn't work for everyone because some of you did not grow up in a good family. But I want you to really listen to the words carefully that church is supposed to be like a really good family. I remember uh, 16 years ago, uh, we had the just undeniable call that God was calling us to Decatur, Illinois. I could tell you that whole story, but it, that part of it doesn't really matter. We just knew God was calling us here. And we were uh, at our last church on the last Sunday, and they brought me up to the stage. Hey, this is Steve's kind of last Sunday. Everyone say goodbye. And then I went on the front row and, and was next to Cheryl, and I started into what could only be described as an ugly cry. That's what I call it, right? It wasn't like sniffles, a few tears coming down. I was like, <laughs> you're like, is he like okay? I, you know, it was an ugly cry because I wasn't just leaving a job. Now, we knew God had called us to do this, but I wasn't just leaving a job. I was leaving 
family. Church isn't its sweet spot when it acts like family. Anytime we love like, love like a, a good family should love, we're in our sweet spot. When we serve, when we offer advice, even when we rebuke, which we do sometimes. Anytime we're doing these things that the early church did and that Jesus taught us, we are acting like a good family acts. You know, Jesus didn't just pray for his nuclear 12 apostles. He prayed for us as well, and here's what he prayed. My prayer is not for them alone, the 12. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. So he's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that, we may be brought, so that they may be brought to complete unity, that the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make myself known in order that that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Here's Jesus' prayer for for the church that would come after the apostles. He said, I pray that they would be one, unified, like a good family, just like us. It's interesting that when God... Uh, was trying to get us to understand his character a little bit. And he's like, man, what image could I give my people that they would kind of understand who I am? He came up with the imagery of a father. He said, just call me Father God. It's the imagery of a really good father. Because I'm going to give you commands, God said, just like a good father does. I remember uh, when I was uh, really young, I grew up uh, out in the country. As a matter of fact, a couple years ago, uh, we were uh, in town for uh, my dad's funeral, and I said, I want to kind of uh, drive my kids by where I grew up. And uh, so we're driving out, and all of a sudden, Lila in the back is like, where are we going? Right? Because it is out there. Right? I grew up in the country. She, I don't know what she thought I was doing. She's like, we must be lost. Or, no, no, this is where, where I grew up. And we, uh, our house sat on the, the, the back end of, of a hill, and people would come racing over that hill like crazy. Crazy. I mean, in a scary, scary way. So my dad had this, not a ton of rules, but one of them was you never, ever cross the road without permission. And I was out there with my friends. We were kicking the ball, and uh, the ball went across the road. And without even thinking, I went across to retrieve that ball. And all of a sudden, I heard the sound that would still send shudders down my spine, the sound of a screen door slamming. And I was like, what? And my dad is there, red-faced, you know, angry. He's like, Stephen Douglas Higgs, which was a sure sign I was in trouble. Stephen Douglas Higgs, get back over here. And I got in so much trouble because I disobeyed my father's commands. So he says, I'm going to give you commands like a good father does. I'm going to discipline you when you break those commands like a good father does. The New Testament talks about that. I'm going to be present with you. It's not all commands and discipline. I'm going to be present with you like a good father is present. I'm going to protect you like a good father protects. We could go on and on about how, why God chose this image of, of father. But again, I know this is a complicated image for some people because you didn't have a good father. 
you know, that, that you didn't have a good father. But, but God still wants us to drill into this a little bit and say, what would a good father look like? I didn't, you might say, I didn't have a good father, but what would a good father look like? And that's the, the role that God wants to play as our spiritual father. And then Jesus, who is God in human, human flesh, when he came to earth, there's like, what is the imagery I can give them to understand who I am in relation to God? And the imagery he chose was the image of the son. Right? In our independent American culture, uh, everyone kind of stands on their own, and we don't understand the relationship in the first century between a son and a father. But in their high honor culture, the one that Jesus lived in, this imagery was significant. The father and the son were one. They just were. So a son speaking for the father was, was speaking literally as the father. He wasn't just speaking for the father. He was speaking as the father. So if a father owned a business, which almost all of them did, if a father owned a business and he would say, there's actually a parable about this, he would send the son, he said, hey, go tell the workers this. When that son showed up, they're like, oh, this is from the father. This is as though the father is speaking to, to, to us. It was the son's voice, but it was the father's will. And so the son desires to carry out the will of the father. Jesus said this repeatedly about himself. He said, man, I have come to do my Father's will. So let me ask you this question. When you think about God as a family, you think about God the Father and Jesus the Son, you think of them as a family unit, how much do you think God loves Jesus? How much do you think Jesus loves God the Father? How unified do you think they were in their mission to save the world? How unified must they have been? God the Father and Jesus the Son playing different roles but the same uh, the, 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 the same character, the, the same person in a lot of ways. How unified do you think they were? And the description is, they're one. And Jesus' prayer, right before he went to the cross, Jesus' prayer was that the church would function the same way. That we would be one. One. We would be one, and we would be family, and he makes this really interesting statement. He says, if the church can pull this off, if they can be one, Father, as I am in you and you are in me, if they can be one, he makes this really bold claim. He says, the world will believe. The world will believe if the church can pull this off. And I don't know about you, but I think we are living in this, in a day where that is so true. When you examine the state of relationships in the United States right now, we are perhaps, I, I don't know that I would go this far, but we are perhaps more divided than we have ever been. Here's what I do know. We're more divided than we've been in my lifetime. There's a political divide that we try to destroy those that are different than us. In your work environment, you may have noticed a work divide that you have groups trying to defeat each other. You have generational divide. Uh, you, you, you've got all of these divides, and you only have to go to social media to see how nasty it can get. But as nasty as social media gets, have you ever gone to the comment section of an article? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right? It makes me want to you know, suck my thumb and curl up into a ball. Right? It's, it's tragic. It is sad. It is a huge, huge divide. And the church, <laughs> we are called to be one. And so in the church, you have Democrats and Republicans worshiping together. In the church, you have millennials and boomers serving side by side. You've got blue collar and white collar studying together. It's a family. It's a family where like, we're not going to be divided by politics. Are you insane? We're not going to be divided by politics. We're not going to be divided by mask mandate. We're not going to be 
divided by vaccination status. We're not going to be divided by because of our generation, because just a, a, the way that your age starts, we're going to be divided. We're not going to be that way. That is what the world does. In the church, we overcome our differences, and we seek unity, and when we become a place of unity, people will believe that Jesus was the Christ. It is interesting that people spend a lot of money and a lot of time trying to figure out how to make the kingdom grow, right? How to bring more and more people to Jesus. They spent a lot of money trying to figure that out. And Jesus' prayer was simple. Try unity. Try loving each other with the fiercest love you can imagine. Try serving one another in a way that Jesus served you. Try humbling yourself. Be unified and the world will believe in Jesus because it is so different. It is so unusual. Uh, it is so countercultural. And so I think as we strive to be a growing family, journeying together to be more like Jesus, I think this will speak to our culture in a profound way. It's one of the reasons we set up the summer the way that we did, is that we are like, man, you know, we could do a lot of things this summer. You know what I kind of wanted to do this summer? Let's play together. All right? There's so much strife and so much anger in our world. Let's be known for at least this summer as the people that play together. And so tonight, you know, there's not like a big worship service plan or anything. Tonight is fun. Tonight's fun. We're going to enjoy one another like a family enjoys one another. We're going to run and play and laugh because I think this is a testimony to our broken world that finds themselves yelling at each other and angry with one another to see a group of people that like, man, I know that guy's a Democrat. I know that guy's a Republican. And they're just hanging out together, laughing, eating, enjoying one another. It is an incredible testimony. There's an interesting description I read one time about uh, the relationship cycle. And it says, uh, th this book said that when you first meet someone, you engage in a period of celebration about the shared interests that you have. So he says, wow, you're an Illini fan? Oh my goodness, I'm an Illini fan, right? You like hunting? I like hunting. Uh, you're a reader? I'm a reader. You like movies? I like movies. And at the very beginning of a relationship, there's this period of celebration over your shared interests. And then there's a crisis point that comes to the relationship when you first discover the differences. And what happens is like, wait, 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 wait. You voted for who? Right? Wait, you voted for who? You like what kind of music? How can you like that kind of music? Wait, wait, wait. You like cats? What? Right? Right? And there's this crisis moment where all of a sudden you realize the differences. But learning to work through those differences and learning to lean into them and learning to love through them anyway is when true love starts. This book made the argument that you haven't even really experienced true love until you've had one of those crisis points at least. Right? Before it's just we're celebrating what we like. Right? It's like, oh, you like movies? I like movies. Let's go to movies together. You like, you, you like that concert? I like, let, let's just, and that's the beginning of a relationship, and it's good and healthy. But it's when it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What did you say your position was on vaccination? What did you say your position was on that? What did you say your position was on that? Whoa, 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 whoa. And it's learning to love in the middle of that, that true love kicks in. And this is the church's specialty, I think. Because it always blows me away whenever I'm talking to someone and they're like, oh, I, you know, everybody at your church is a part of this political party. This, you know, they're all Republican or they're all Democrats. Like, You're not talking to the people I'm talking to. 
right? Because my people are all over the map on politics. I know that it's true. And I can tell because of how uneasy you get when you think I'm going down a certain path, right? Like, oh, I'm pulling out my phone now. I'm going to send an email right in this moment, right? Yeah. We're all different. We come from different backgrounds. We enjoy different things. And it is not running away from it that makes us the church. It's empowered by grace, leaning into it. And saying, man, you know, we have a lot in common. Politics isn't one of them. Or we have a lot in common. Music isn't one. We have a lot in common. Books aren't one of them. But I'm still going to love you and serve you and show you grace. And I'll let you know I think you're wrong. But I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you no matter what. Can we talk about the cat issue, right? I, you know, I'm going to love you despite, all right? So as Jesus finishes up this prayer, I want to close the sermon by talking about these two things. That if we're going to be the church I just described, the church that is a family and uh, an example to the community and all of those things, Jesus says we're going to need these two things. And first on the screen for you is we are going to need an overwhelming amount of love. Here's what Jesus says in verse 26. I have made you known to them and will continue to make make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. Paul defines this even more in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And Northwest, if we're going to be the family God created us to be, This is the type of love that we're going to need. It's patience. It's a patient love because people will disappoint you. It's a persevering love because there are going to be times where you want to give up. It's a serving love because at times you're going to want to be self-seeking. And you will notice that all of these attributes, by the way, are attributes of God. He is patient. He is not easily angered. He rejoices with the truth. The Bible will repeatedly talk about knowing God is to be filled with his love. And so one of the ways that the Spirit works to make us more loving is when we grow in our knowledge of God. To know God is to be more like God and to be more loving like God is loving. That actually when we fail to love, it is almost always a breakdown in our knowledge of God that leads us to be unloving. Let me explain that to you. And patience is forgetting that God is in control. And so instead of Jesus take the wheel, it's like, no, I got the wheel. Right? Jesus, you just sit here in the co-captain seat or whatever, Right? And patience is forgetting that God is in control. Keeping a record of wrongs is forgetting that God is a God of grace. Envy is forgetting that God is a God of blessing. Anger is forgetting that God is a God of justice and he will take care of things. And so Jesus prays that we would know God. He says, my prayer is that they they would know you, Father. That they would know you and by knowing you, they would love like you. So we're going to need an overwhelming amount of love. And second, we're going to need an understanding of Jesus's presence and power. He ends with this prayer, and that I myself may be in them. Jesus promises to be with us every step of the way, and this is so significant. Don't just zone out on this, because Jesus was so good at relationships and so good at loving others. He loved his disciples. He loved his family. He loved his critics. He loved his enemies. And to have his spirit with us, empowering us and convicting us, is not insignificant. When we're on the wrong path, 
when we're refusing to love our critics or our enemies like Jesus loved his. When, when we're on the wrong path, it is great to have his spirit with us. Think about trying to learn the piano and imagine if you could go back in time and like learn from Beethoven or if you were learning to box and you could go back in time and learn from Muhammad Ali or if you wanted to learn to golf and go back in time and learn from Tiger Woods, you get the point. And what we have is so much better than that. Jesus never just told the church, love each other. He said, I will invade your space and I will help you and empower you and motivate you to love each other while, while he's with us. Why? It's hard. Now listen, like I said earlier, I want to dismiss the notion that it's always hard. I don't think that's true either. It's not always hard. There are lots of times where you're going to be encouraged by the church. There's a lot of times where you're going to be helped by the church. You're going to be loved well by the church. That you're going to receive friendship from the church. It's not always hard. That's also not true. That's a narrative that's out there that is untrue. That the church is just full of unrighteous, angry, bigoted, angry, you know, that, that whole thing. It is not true. But sometimes it's hard to love. There are going to be times in this place and in this community, there will be times that you will be hurt. There will be times that you are misunderstood. There will be times when you misunderstand others and they misunderstand you. There will be times where it's hard. And Jesus is here, and he wants, his help. he wants to help us overcome. There, there will be these crisis moments that I talked about where it's like, man, I thought you were this, and it turns out you, like, you know, we had a little fun with it, but there, there are these crisis moments in relate. oh, this is going to be harder than I thought. And Jesus says, don't run away. Don't run away. Lean in. And learn to love the way that Jesus loves, because the truth of the matter is, I had my first crisis point with Jesus decades ago, where he's like, whoa, 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 wait, what are you doing? Why did you say that? Why did you do that? You like cats? What? No. All right, so there's these crisis moments with Jesus, and he leans in and loves and guides and rebukes and helps and empowers, and that's what he calls us to be as well. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love and his grace. Uh, this is a, a topic and a message that is uh, embedded pretty deep in me. Um, because I want us to be a healthy family. And by your grace, we are. I want to thank you for every person in this room that leans in and helps and guides and serves and loves those that have reached a crisis point and have not run away but instead leaned in and said, man, I'm going to be like Jesus in this situation. I'm going to love you despite. Your cross teaches us to do this. Your grace teaches us to do this. Our love should be different because of you. And I pray that it would be. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together right now, and it's a celebration of his love and self-sacrifice and service and, and um, overcoming great odds to love us and love us well. And so the servers are going to pass those out here in just a minute, and you can take the two cups stacked on top of each other and, and just kind of think about his grace and think about his love. And then the, to transition from that is people that are different than me, 
people that think different than me, people that have a different perspective than me. I might think they're wrong, and that's okay. I might want to debate them a little bit, and that's okay. But how can I love them well, even when we disagree? And Because uh, and, that's what, what good family does. That's what healthy family does. And so I want us to transition to that thought as well. And you can just kind of think through God's grace and how it's impacted your life. And then I'll come back up and we will receive it all together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, may we serve the way that you served. Show grace the way that you show grace. Love the way that you have loved us. May we be that growing family Uh, journeying together to be more like your son, Jesus. May it be true. May it be so. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Hey, go ahead and stand up. We're going to close with one last song. Uh, Really glad that you're here for the uh, This is the Church series, and we're going to continue it next Sunday. And uh, see you out at 6 o'clock tonight for food and 7 o'clock for doors open at Splash Cove. Should be a really, really good time. I'll see you tonight. God bless. Your name is Pat.